You're listening to the Practical Islamic Finance Podcast, where we help people globally build wealth in a halal way. We hope you find it useful and fun. Anything you hear in this podcast is not to be understood as personalized financial or investment advice and only represents the views of the speaker. Investing entails risk, including loss of principal. Be sure to do your own due diligence before you make any investment decisions. Some of the episodes of this podcast are audio versions of corresponding Practical Islamic Finance YouTube videos. If you want to watch the video version of the podcast, simply go to the Practical Islamic Finance YouTube channel. And now, without further ado, Bismillah. Thanks so much for doing this for me. And sure. So I'm doing the story on Islamic finance, and you are... I consider you to be an expert on Islamic finance. But before we get into that, do you want to quickly summarize your background for me? Yeah, sure. So my name is Rakan Kayeli. I lived nine years of my early life in Syria, and the rest of my life was in the United States. I studied at Ohio State Computer Science and Engineering and Finance. After graduating, I got sucked into the corporate world, specifically in engineering, just because there were more lucrative opportunities there. But in my senior year in college, I had done research on the viability of Islamic finance as a substitute for interest-based banking. And it remained in my mind something that I wanted to follow up on. And then in 2015, I came to the epiphany that life was moving very quickly and I needed to act on the things that I was most interested in before too much of it went by. So I started a blog called Practical Islamic Finance, wherein I wrote a lot of the ideas that had been just swirling in my mind without any sort of vent to the public. I started writing that and that was very therapeutic almost. And it was just a hobby. Towards the end of 2015, I started making YouTube videos on Practical Islamic Finance again, just as a hobby. And then I got married in 2018. And I was like, I, as I accumulate more responsibilities, my flexibility in terms of changing career paths is going to be more and more limited. So I know that I want to change into something that's more focused on Islamic finance. So I might as well do it now before I have a kid and my responsibilities increase even further. Thank God my wife was very supportive. And at the beginning of 2019, I left my engineering job in order to start an idea that I had for financing using interest-free products. There was a lot of challenges with that particular business. At the end of 2021, I decided to try and see if I could monetize my Practical Islamic Finance channel. And I started Practical Islamic Finance, a membership service, which previously I was just producing content for Practical Islamic Finance without really trying to monetize it. And, and so that's my main focus right now. Practical Islamic Finance is basically a hub for halal conscious investors to build wealth in a halal way. So we provide insights that are written from the perspectives of halal conscious investors on things like stocks and cryptos and dust and investment funds that halal conscious investors may be considering as options to for their investments. So that's okay, really nice. how I got here. Yeah, nice. And you're a practicing Muslim, right? Yes, yes, indeed. And how important is your faith to you? Are you fairly religious? 
Yeah, I would say so. My my religion is extremely important to me. It obviously guides basically all my actions in this life and it gives them, in my mind, a purpose. I don't think without religion, specifically my Muslim religion, I would live as a fulfilling life uh, as I do. When I was a teenager, I had a lot of existential questions as you do when you are a teenager. And, you know, it got me into a state of acute depression. And I think that religion, specifically Islam, is what got me out of that. Yeah. Okay, nice. So what, this is my first question now on Islamic finance. Why, before we even get into anything, why does Islam have rules on finance? Like, why does religion get to have its own rules for a financial system? Sure. Islam is, the whole objective of Islam is to be a source of mercy for everyone and everything. And there's a verse in the Quran, the translation of which is basically, we have not sent you, O Muhammad, except as mercy to everyone and everything. And To fulfill that objective of being a source of mercy, one of the very important aspects of people's life, which can make their lives either much better or much worse, is the field of finance. And so it's very natural for Islam to have something to say about that particular field. Yeah. To be honest, I've never understood the premise of this question. If Islam has rules on how you should behave morally, why can it not have rules on how you can behave economically and financially? Yeah. And I think that we have seen, we're seeing firsthand the results of not having these rules. Like if you look at the state of the economy today, what is the state of the economy? So in a nutshell, we have inflation that's extremely high, at least in the United States and most other places in the world. Inflation that's extremely high. And I think part of the reason for that inflation is the fact that our money is created out of debt. And you can either pay off that debt in the form of easy money, which is printed money, right? Like we have right now, or hard money. And obviously, we're going to continue to choose easy money until something breaks. So I think that's a big part of why we have the inflation that we do. And what's the shin that's being proposed? The shin that is being proposed is that we have a good economy. Let's break it. Let's make sure that we have some unemployment. We destroy demand. We destroy people's ability to purchase goods and services, we deplete their savings, and maybe that will bring inflation down. This seems to me like extremely flawed system that we have. And I believe that some of the teachings of Islam could really help us out in this situation. So it's readily apparent to me, and I think for the honest observer, how having these types of rules may prove rather useful, not just for Muslims, but for humanity in general. Yeah. So let's go through some of the main terms that are used in Islamic finance. I guess the first and most popular one is riba. What does riba mean? So riba is basically interest on debt. If we were if we're going to use a term that is readily understandable by most people. To be more technical, any benefit that a lender anticipates, any worldly benefit, they can have a non-worldly benefit as, such as giving a loan as charity, but any worldly benefit that the lender anticipates from their loan is a form of riba. So an obvious example of that, like I said, would be interest. So to say, I give you $100, you give me back 110 in one year, that's interest on debt. A sort of not so clear example would be you have a business, let's say I'm a customer of that business, you ask for a loan, 
I say, here's a 0% interest loan, but I expect that as a customer of your business, you're going to treat me better because I gave you this, I did you this favor, right? The only type of permissible loan in Islam is a charitable loan. So I'm giving it as charity. I just want this to be a, a way where I please my creator. It's a good deed that I'm doing. If that's your intention behind the loan, then it's permissible. Anything else is riba yeah so even if i give you a zero percent interest loan and i expect not a monetary incentive for it like the return i get from you is not anything monetary but just you treat me better give me some other kind of benefit that's still riba exactly so that's prohibited in islam riba right yes correct okay and something else that's prohibited is qarar i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that correctly but correct qarar is basically ambiguity relating to the object of sale. So common examples are that are given are buying a calf in its mother's womb. So you don't really know what's in the mother's womb, a single calf, is it twins? Does it have a defect, a genetic defect, for example? Is there there's a lot of ambiguity around around material aspects of what you're buying. And this ambiguity is called al-ghar, and this is what the Prophet, peace be upon him, prohibited. So why is this prohibited in Islam? What's the rationale behind prohibiting qatar? Sure. So the rationale is to minimize conflict between trading parties. So it's very possible that when there is material ambiguity regarding aspects of the thing that is being purchased, that the buyer, after finding out what exactly they purchased, that they feel cheated, that they feel like they overpaid, that they feel like the seller perhaps was not forthcoming. And this type of conflict between the buyer and the seller is what Islam tries to avoid with the prohibition of Al-Ghara. And then the third fundamental prohibition in Islamic finance is Maysir. What's that about? So Al-Maysir very literal translation is something that comes easily. But the practical definition is zero-sum games that involve money. So like gambling? Um, I, I like to be more specific about exactly what the definition is, because a lot of people consider certain types of investments to be gambling, right? If they're high risk. But that's not really what Islam is prohibiting. Islam does not prohibit high-risk activities. What it does prohibit is zero-sum games. That so like options money. trading? Some options trading. So there are some options that are used to hedge risk, in which case Fair. there is a trade. So you're, you're giving, it's almost like an insurance contract. Yep. You're giving money and you're offloading risk. So in, in some cases, there are some permissible uses of options, in my opinion. Some cases where you have naked options that are just being used for a speculation, I believe those are fall in the category of Al-Maysu. Right. If you write uncovered calls, if you use options to speculate, basically. In most cases, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And is there a verse in scripture that talks about Mesir and gives some kind of rationale as to why it's prohibited. Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple different verses. The verse, the first verse from Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse number 219, they ask you about wine and gambling, say in them is great sin and yet some benefit for people, but their sin is greater than their benefit. And they ask you, what should they spend? Say, the excess beyond needs. Thus, Allah makes clear to you the verses so that you may give them thought. And then the second 
the second verse regarding al maser and its prohibition all you who believe indeed intoxicants gambling sacrificing on stone altars and divining arrows are but defi defilements from the work of satan so avoid it so that you may be successful satan wants to create enmity and hatred amongst you through intoxicants and gambling and to avert you from the remembrance of allah and from prayer so will you abstain from these things so those are the two verses that deal with al-masir and they deal with other matters as well but i think it's important to in the first verse the logic that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives for the prohibition of al-masir and when he says say in them there is great sin or harm and yet some benefit for people but their sin is greater than their benefit and so this is the logic really behind a legislation in islam is and that you do a, it's very utilitarian approach and that it does a cost benefit analysis of different matters for some matters allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done the cost benefit analysis for us and because perhaps he realizes that we may arrive at the wrong conclusion if we do it ourselves and for other matters he leaves the cost benefit analysis up to us to do when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done the cost benefit analysis for us as muslims we read it and we say yep i heard you and this is what we're doing we're we this is non-negotiable for things that are not explicitly mentioned then we do our logical analysis to figure out what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would want us to do. Yeah. So what are your rules on these tenets of Islamic finance? Not how they're practiced today, but do you think these rules and tenets of Islamic finance are just? Do you think they're feasible? Yeah, absolutely I do. I think they're feasible. I think they're just. One of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the just. Everything I believe in Islam is meant to promote justice and to make things more fair for people. I do think that they are feasible and perhaps now they are in demand more than ever because I feel we have as humanity strayed from our natural instincts regarding these matters. Now, if you look at gambling for example, it's become just an afterthought people don't think of it as evil necessarily you can't watch a sporting event in the united states without being inundated with different companies that are trying to get you to bet on the game and this wasn't the case 20 years ago 30 years ago this was not the case and in my state of ohio for the longest time we've had a ban on casinos and a ban on gambling and then they just kept pushing the lobbies just kept pushing and pushing until finally they got some form of gambling passed and i think the entire state is poor because of it people don't make smart analysis of these things because they see oh casinos gambling whatever they're generating revenue for the state but they don't see all the costs in family services and the costs in treating people who are addicted to gambling and perhaps you have a spike in crime around those gambling centers and perhaps you have other family issues more divorces more court cases or whatever they don't they can't really see those types of costs to gambling and to other things that Islam has prohibited and this is i believe one of the reasons why Islam was explicit in their prohibition because over time people just justify anything and so these are stakes in the ground where Islam says no you're not going to do any sort of analysis on your own beyond this point this is where you stop and i think that's very useful 
Okay. And what are your thoughts on how Islamic finance is practiced today? I think it's pretty much a tragedy, to be honest. Yeah. I don't think there's any sort of real utility in any Islamic finance product that I've come across. They're just trying to, and for good reason, because there's no incentive to change. Because when you stick the word Islamic on a product, Muslims naturally gravitate to it and buy it, even though it's less advantageous, less cost-effective, less everything positive from the traditional counterparts. And so long as Muslims are willing to do that, there's no incentive to change. There's nothing that Islamic finance up until now has offered that's useful. No problem. Why is that? What's the root cause of that? Because there's no incentive. Because people found that if you just stick the word Islamic on a product, it works in terms of marketing that specific product to the target market. So they just keep doing that. Unless Muslims start to say, no, I'm not going to buy it just because the name Islamic is on it. And in fact, I prefer a traditional product over the quote unquote Islamic product so that I'm not encouraging Islamic finance to not innovate, to not produce anything useful. I'm not going to use their products unless Muslims come to that conclusion. It will continue on forever. One of the reasons why I created Practical Islamic Finance and I was very eager to say the things that I did say was because I felt if I wasn't going to say it, no one seemed to be saying it. It was just completely insane in my mind what we've, what we've done with the commandments we've been given, how silly the implementations of these commandments have been and how we market them. Some people may actually be convinced with them. I'm sure some people are. Some people, I don't know. But the bottom line is that what we're offering today is not useful, as is evidenced by the fact that non-Muslims don't use it. If it was useful, yeah. if it had unique utility, a non-Muslim would use it. So why can't Islamic finance bankers create products that are genuinely halal? Like why is a halal investment product or a halal mortgage not as profitable as a conventional product? Because ultimately, it's for the bankers. Oh, it's for the actual halal. So something that's truly halal, why is it not more profitable? I think it would why? be more profitable. No, for Muslims, why? Because the reason Muslims are not that interested in Islamic finance is because they turn out to be slightly worse off. And that's why they gravitate toward conventional products. So why is it that Islamic finance products are not as good and as profitable for Muslims as conventional financial products? Because they charge more and they provide the same product. So so if you take like a, a mortgage and compare it to the quote unquote halal mortgages, it's the exact same product. In fact, if you look at some of the biggest servicers in the United States, they actually sell their mortgages to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to, to actually service the loan. It's But they're just a marketing window that has access to Muslim consumers. You mean the Islamic mortgages get sold to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or some other bank. And customers of these services will confirm this when they get their bills, their mortgage payment bills. They'll say the name of some bank other than the originating company just sells the mortgage, basically, and then gives it, hands it off to a traditional bank to service it. So there's no difference. But what these halal mortgages, why they're worse off, customers are worse off using them is because these halal mortgage companies figured out that they can charge a premium to the traditional mortgage because they have less competition 
because people are putting them in a different bucket from the rest of the mortgages out there. So they can charge a higher price because they're claiming that they're halal. And then also something that some halal mortgages that do, which is less advantageous to the customer, is that they predetermine the amount of interest that they're going to collect. And what I mean by that is with a traditional mortgage, if you pay early, you pay less in interest. However, with a quote unquote halal mortgage, they say, oh, you're buying, there's different variations, but they all end up being the same thing. You're buying a house for price X, the price of the house is X, but because you're paying it over five years, the price is X plus Y. If you pay it after one year or you pay it after five years, you're going to pay X plus Y every time in order to settle your obligations. So they fix the amount of interest that they collect from the outset. So it's more expensive and it's less advantageous for the customer. Yeah. So do you feel like we're in this position today where actual Islamic finance is not attractive to Muslims because we run our society on easy money? Would that be a factor? I mean, to a less extent, people blame it on the way we create money, which is absurd. I'll give them that. But that's not why we don't have products that are truly Islamic. Even in this environment of creating money, even with all of that, you can still create a product that's, that is truly Islamic, right? People who use that argument, yeah, are trying to find an excuse where they shouldn't. There's no reason why in this environment you can't create a product that is truly interest-free and advantageous for the customer. How would it work where, it's, where there's no riba, it's halal, and it's advantageous to the customer? It has to be a profit and loss sharing type arrangement. Yeah, That's the only way Islamic finance works, is that the financier and the finance do well together and they don't do well together. And so long as it's a profit and loss arrangement, it works. It's Islamic. So long as you have this BS where you're charging an extra amount because you're waiting for your money, so long as that dynamic is there, it's not Islamic. It's a complete fraud and and has no business calling itself Islamic. So it's, it's like a tax on Muslims if they do want to stay true to their faith and go for Islamic finance products from their local Islamic bank, where they're paying more for the same conventional financial product. Would you say it's like a tax on Muslims? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say just the halal industry in general is a tax on Muslims. I've seen some ridiculous products that are calling themselves halal, just using halal in order to charge a premium for their products. The default thing for everything in Islam is halal. That's the default. That's not the exception. That's mm. the default. It's halal until you prove it's haram. It should be a given that something is halal unless you're dealing with something that is known to be haram. Yeah. So how do Muslims move forward? What can Muslims do to stay true to their faith, but also not make financial decisions that effectively have them subsidize the rest of the world? I think that Muslims have a really important thing going for them, which is the fact that the average Muslim wants to follow Islam. The average Muslim is, and they've demonstrated, they're willing to pay a premium to feel like they're following their religion. So the market is ready and waiting for products that make sense, that serve their needs. What's missing is entrepreneurship that is focused on fulfilling those needs as opposed to just replicating a, an already existing product and sticking the name halal or Islamic in front of it. Yeah.
And un- until that happens, how can Muslims rationalize not partaking in Islamic finance and basically going against the scriptures of their religion they practice? How can they reconcile this fact with themselves? So I don't think Muslims should go against their beliefs. Oddly enough, there are a lot of products that are coming up that are making steps towards being Islamic that are not started by Muslims. And I think for 95% of people's needs, there's currently a product that can, maybe that percentage is wrong, but I think that for a lot of needs for Muslims, there today there are products that fulfill those needs in a completely halal way. There are a subset of, uh, of problems that have still not found solutions, but I think that we have a, it depends on the level of necessity of that thing in order to justify whether using it is permissible or not. So we have this rule, which means necessities can, if they're acute enough, can make certain prohibitions permissible. Let's say this very rough example. Let's say you're dying in the desert and the only thing you can eat is pork. You only have pork. You can eat that pork. Eat the pork okay. and stay alive. Yeah. So it depends on the level of acuteness of the necessity when applying that rule. So if, you, if someone has an acute need that is not being fulfilled by anything halal, then then using that which is haram to the extent that fills that need, not like indulging yeah. themselves, but to the extent that fulfills their need, that can be permissible. But I would say that generally speaking, and this may ruffle some feathers, but generally speaking, I would say if you have the choice between a traditional product and quote unquote Islamic product, and you know that the Islamic product is not really Islamic, that they're the same, then mm. I would go with the traditional product over the Islamic product in order not to encourage the continuation of that product that is claiming yeah. to be Islamic but isn't. Okay, That's and then let's say, yeah, and then let's say that the Islamic product is actually halal, but it's more expensive and you have to pay a premium for it. It satisfies the same thing that a conventional financial product would. What should you do as a if Muslim? If it's halal, if it's yeah. actually halal, then I would go with yeah. the halal product, even if it's okay. more expensive. Okay. If it's actually halal, I would go with it. My What I'm talking about is yeah. something calling itself halal, but it's not. Understood. Yeah. yeah. Great. This is brilliant. Yeah. I'm out of questions, but is, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, aside from the fact that I want to emphasize that I am pro the Islamic finance industry. I am pro the concept of offering financial products that are actually halal. And in fact, that's what I try to do just because I'm criticizing some of our early modern iterations doesn't mean I'm against it as a concept. But I do want to be very clear in criticizing these products because without these criticisms, we're not going to improve. Without the critical interrogation of what we've produced so far, we're not going to improve. And that's why I'm perhaps aggressive in my critiques. But I just, I do it with the intention of hopefully motivating positive change in the future. Thank you for listening to the Practical Islamic Finance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it and would like to leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. Until next time, take care of yourself. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you all.